Good morning. Welcome to Discovery's Digital Gathering. We are glad you're here. We are excited for what God has in store this morning. We want to invite you to download our app, which will help you stay current with our community and get further connected by filling out our new visitor card. Let's prepare our hearts for worship and for the adventure of discovering the good news of Jesus together. Well, in your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 17. Even though we're meeting digitally, we highly encourage you to have a physical copy of the Bible in front of you. John chapter 17 is where we're going to begin the conversation today. We're going to be um, in a variety of different places throughout Scripture in our conversation, but I want us to start here. John chapter 17, this is a prayer of Jesus towards the end of his time with his closest group of followers, the 12 disciples. So John 17, verse 20 through 23, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, step now into this moment and ask for you to hold all of our uh, thoughts, anxieties, worries, concerns, burdens from the past week, from the past months. Uh, also, God, our desires, our joys, uh, the things that we're celebrating, would you take all of that and hold it for us so that we can be unburdened, to be present in this moment, to be open to what you want to say to us and how you would like to speak to us today. Tune our hearts, God, to your voice and give us the courage to respond in whatever ways we need to respond. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, uh, actually, sorry, last fall, we started a conversation here at Discovery called Counterculture. And we're actually picking this up again, even though it's been a while, we're picking it up again today. And I want to begin by uh, reframing this for us, reminding us of what the bigger context of this conversation is all about. The basic premise here is this, the ecclesia, right? We've been talking about the ecclesia, the church, as we've been making our way through the story of Acts for, for weeks and even months now. But the ecclesia changed the world. It grew and multiplied and expanded from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, off to the ends of the earth, not because it was relevant or slick or good at marketing. It was transformational because it was different. Because it was different. It disrupted the norm, the status quo. Now here at Discovery, we talk a lot about this, this big kind of fancy word, contextualization, right? Making the good news of Jesus understandable in our context, in our cultural moment. And certainly the ecclesia, the early church, was great at this. And we've seen many examples of that in our time in Acts. But contextualization is all about creating understanding. It's not about blending in. 
It's about creating understanding. It's not about blending in. The invitation to follow Jesus is this invitation to live a different story. The kingdom of God that Jesus brings is a different kind of kingdom. The church is not meant to be a buddy with culture. It is meant to be a counterculture. A counterculture demonstrating for people this different story, this different kingdom. Now, many people have written about this. Tim Keller has written one of the uh, most concise, brilliant articles that outlines some of the ways in which the early church, the, the culture of the early church was different from the culture of the Roman Empire. Five ways. Let me just uh, list these off here fairly quickly. First, the church, the culture of the church was multi-ethnic and multicultural. They crossed all sorts of boundaries that were not crossed in Rome or in Jewish culture for that matter. And we've seen many examples of that again, right, in our conversation in Acts. Second, the church took care of the poor. They fed people. They met tangible needs. They provided relief for people who were living in poverty. Roman culture tended to look upon the poor as weak and lazy, and that's your fault and your problem. Don't bother us with that stuff. The church took care of the poor. Third, the church practiced forgiveness and reconciliation. They pressed into this kingdom of right relationships, which practically speaking meant that they were anti-violence, which again provided a strong contrast, a counterculture to the very militaristic, very violent Roman culture. The, the epitome, of course, of the, the Roman culture of violence was the cross, crucifixion. Fourth, the church valued life. They upheld the sanctity of life. Now, when we hear sanctity of life in, in, in 21st century America, our minds immediately go to abortion. And I believe the early church would have cared very deeply about this issue. But abortion then, very different than what it looks like now. Many families, many women in, in the first century would carry babies to full term, but then they would leave the babies in the street or on the outskirts of town, and there'd be these abandoned children. And it was the church, it was the Christians that would rescue and adopt these babies. A totally radical concept in that culture. And then finally, last but not least, the church practiced a sexual ethic characterized by restraint. If you think that our 21st century American sexual ethic is permissive, we're Puritans compared to Rome. It was crazy. And so for them, sex within the boundaries of marriage was even more head-scratching, abnormal than it is now. Now, here's an interesting thing about that. This put the early church in a very progressive position towards women. Marriage was a way for women to be protected, both physically and economically, in, in this very patriarchal world this world that objectified and commodified them. So staying married was a radical affirmation of the worth and value of women. Staying, getting married and staying married in the Roman Empire was countercultural. Keller, ever the, the thought provoker, points out that these practices are actually still quite countercultural today. 
and that they push on some of our political leanings in both directions, right? In both the left and the right. Practices one and two might sound liberal to some of us, and practices four and five might sound conservative. And then in the middle, you have pacifism, reconciliation, forgiveness, anti-violence, right? That just ticks everybody off. No one's ever happy with that. <laughs> None of us want to reconcile and forgive anyone. Now, Rodney Stark, who Keller borrows from significantly, says it this way, kind of summarizing this. The Roman Empire, he says, was stingy with their resources and promiscuous with their bodies. Said another way, they gave nobody their money and everybody their body, and along come the Christians, the little Jesuses, and they gave practically no one their bodies and everyone their money. <laughs> Counterculture. Last fall, we focused more on the generosity with our resources part of that, right? How we move towards God's dream for justice and shalom and peace in our world that's characterized by injustice and division and discord. Now, as we uh, get back into this conversation this fall, we're looking more at the other side of that, stinginess with our bodies. That might sound like a weird phrase, but this is going to help give us some context for what we're going to do here over the next three weeks, which is look at things like friendship and singleness and marriage and how we can live counterculturally in each of those areas of life. Now, to talk about stinginess with our bodies, countercultural friendships and singleness and marriage, we need to talk about what it means to be human, or what we might call anthropology. The foundational text for a Christian anthropology is Genesis chapter 1. This is, of course, the creation account that's given to us at the very beginning of our Bibles. Genesis chapter 1, if you have a Bible, flip over there and take a look at this. The culmination of God's creation is in verses 26 through 28, where God says this, Let us, take note of that, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Us, are them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Notice the repetition. We are what? Image bearers of God. Image bearers of God. Now, this is language that maybe sounds a little bit odd to us. It would have been quite familiar to the original audience, those folks living in the ancient Near East. Kings had image bearers who would represent them in places where the king could not be physically present. Now, what's beautiful about the Genesis account of creation is that it resonates with that ancient Near Eastern mindset, but again, is counter-cultural. It's very subversive. Because among other things, this is the image of God that's being spoken about here, right? Not just the image of the king, it is the image of God, and God says a very 
a very interesting thing, right? He, he blesses the man and the woman and he says, rule with me. Don't just represent me, participate with me. Which is not what a king would have said. God gives away a tremendous amount of authority to the human beings, the man and the woman. Which is a big clue, a big clue, as to what it means to be a human being, an image bearer of God who participates with God in his creation, which makes us different from angels and animals. Animals, right? Chemical reactions, no real agency. We say things like this, my instincts just took over, I couldn't help myself. This is where a lot of our cultural conversation about what it means to be a human being lands, right? We're sophisticated animals, containers for chemical reactions, nothing special to see here. No. No, Genesis 1 says, no, you are not an animal. You are an image bearer of the living God. On the other hand, though, we're also not angels. To think of ourselves this way, this is the active denial of our humanity, our desires, of the truth that we were made to enjoy things and to take pleasure in the physicality of our world. This is where a lot of, quite frankly, a lot of Christian anthropology lands. This denial of our emotions, avoiding pleasure, trying to repress our humanity so that we appear more spiritual. But again, no, no. Enjoy that meal. Savor that wine. Make love to your spouse. Laugh at that joke. Yeah, you're a human being. You're a human being. You're not an angel. You're not an animal. You are an image bearer of the living God called to participate with God in his creation and to love him with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love God with your whole self. Relating to Him through your affections, not just your intellect. Which leads us to the truth that at the core of everything, when you peel back all the layers, at the core of everything is relationship. What it means to be a human being is to live in right relationship with God and with others. We believe that God exists in this mysterious oneness of three distinct persons. This mystery has been named the Trinity for thousands of years by Jesus followers. And at some point, I'm excited for us to do a deeper dive into the doctrine of the Trinity. But today, I just want to focus on the implications. If God exists as community, three in oneness, united yet distinct, And if this God creates us in his image, then we can only be fully human in relationship with him and with other people. Unity with distinctness. Image bearers of the living God called to love God and to love other people. There are massive implications in a Christian anthropology. Implications for how we treat our bodies, for how we treat other human beings. And this brings us back to what Jesus is saying there in John chapter 17. Unity, glory, love, us in Christ and Christ in us. 
we will be known, he says, by our love. I want to come back to this idea, a little, little detour, and then we'll land, uh, we'll land back in John 17. Over a hundred times, the writers of the New Testament use this little phrase, one another. One another. They'll say things like this, be devoted to one another. Romans 12, be patient with one another. Ephesians 4, bear one another's burdens. Galatians 6, accept one another. Romans 15, build one another up. 1 Thessalonians 5. Exhort one another. Hebrews 3, forgive one another. Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4, submit to one another. Ephesians 5.21 and 1 Peter 5.5, 5, comfort one another. Encourage one another. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, pray for one another. James 5, honor one another. Romans 12. Be devoted, be patient, bear one another's burdens, accept one another, build one another up. There's also some negative ones. Don't lie to one another. Colossians 3, don't grumble against each other. James 5, stop passing judgment on one another. Romans 14, why is this repeated so many times? Because we are members of one another. Romans 12, 5 and Ephesians 4, 25, we are members of one another. Think about that for a minute. Kind of sounds like the Trinity distinct yet unified. Which is not to say that we are the same as God, but that, again, we are image bearers. Now, there's one one another command that is repeated more than any other. In fact, it's repeated at least 16 times out of those 100 one another statements, and it's this, love one another. Over and over and over again. Love one another, love one another, love one another. Like the old song says, they will know we are Christians by our love. So, when we talk about relationships, community, friendship, these are not just nice ideas. Oh, it's good to have a social life or to be connected to some people. No, it's the whole idea. It's the whole thing. We are countercultural in the ways we live in, into the image of God and the ways we value human life because of that image, but we are also countercultural in the very mundane practice of friendship. One of the most startling, surprising things Jesus says also comes from John, John chapter 15. My command is this love each other as I have loved you. There it is again. Greater love, Jesus says, has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. Think about that. The God of the universe, the God who created us in his image, calls us friends. Friendship is at the core of of everything. Friendship with God, friendship with each other. And yet, many of us struggle with this, right? We, we struggle with friendship. We struggle to make friends. Many of us feel lonely, isolated, disconnected. And so the question then where, where we want to land this morning is this, how do we be friends like Jesus? How can we be countercultural in our friendships and in the ways that we value and pursue community? 
Well, to do this, we follow the example of Jesus, his pattern of incarnation, which I'll explain more in a moment, but incarnation, cross, and resurrection. Incarnation is a fancy word. All it means is is to take on flesh, in the flesh. What what, What I mean by this is you have to be with people. To be friends, to be in community, you have to be with people in the flesh. Hanging out with other people is one of the most spiritual things that we can do. Because it's in the hanging out that all those one another's come to life. Very hard to encourage one another, to comfort one another, to forgive one another when you aren't with one another. So hang out. Be with people. And and I just got to say, I think our church is actually pretty good at this. I certainly see it on Sunday. I see it throughout the week, the ways that you guys create time to be with one another. One of the most countercultural things you can do is just carve out time to hang out. Now, incarnation, that's the fun part, but then comes the cross part, which is kind of intimidating sounding, right? But hang with me here for a second. The cross part means getting into the mess right? Into the conflict and the burdens and the suffering together, the sacrificing for each other. When you go through a cross moment together, that's really when you become friends. That's really when you're in it. But on the other side of that are resurrection moments as well. And this is when we move through those difficult times and come out on the other end and see something new emerge, whether that's through the process of forgiveness or reconciliation or Uh, Again, just walking with people through difficult moments in life. Moving through that pattern, incarnation, cross, leads to resurrection. And look, we are sinful, broken people with unhealthy relational patterns that will need to be redeemed. We will always need a resurrection to save us and sustain our relationships. So incarnation, cross, resurrection, that's the pattern that Jesus sets for us. That's how we can uh, move towards countercultural friendships in our day and age. Now to get practical, it is in mid-sized communities where this pattern is worked out for us here at Discovery. It's where you hang out with people, incarnation. It's where you get to know one another and bear one another's burdens, right? Those cross moments. But it's also where resurrection brings forgiveness and reconciliation and new creation. So if you're not involved in a mid-sized community, my strong encouragement to you is, is to join one now, today. Look it up on your app. Find out when the next one is meeting. Go be a part of that and lean into those relationships. But I also want to go one layer deeper because some of the most holy friendships, some of the most counterculture, one another relationships flourish outside of the official structures and programs of the church. We certainly want to do what we can to help people get connected, but it's oftentimes in the moments outside of official things that some of the most beautiful things can happen. When I was in college, it was Fellowship of the Burrito, and it was so many late night trips to Viva Burrito in Stockton. I don't even want to think about how much money I spent there, but it was in those moments that bonds were formed, amazing conversations happened, relationships that continue to this day, 20 years later, all of that formed 
in those times. Other stages of life, it's been the fellowship of the fire pit, a group of us that gathered in backyards to, to dream and to share and to pray and to cry and to laugh together. Again, those sort of unscripted, unprogrammed moments of growing deeper in relationships. So many examples that I've seen here at Discovery, people going on road trips together, getting break, like starting breakfast cadres, supper clubs, play date groups, board game meetups, basketball teams, uh, groups of people that go running together, all sorts of things like that. I've seen people intentionally move into houses together or into the same neighborhood to make hanging out easier. Again, at Discovery, we do our best to help people connect and to make friends, but there's also this layer beneath that, right? This layer that requires some creativity and imagination and intentionality in order to, to create that space where we can bear the image of God to one another, where we can practice those one another's, those forgiving, burden-bearing, comforting, all those different things, where we love one another in ways that can never be programmed or forced. It's in those places that God does some of his best work. And it's where, it's where the counterculture emerges, right? Where unity is formed, us in Christ, us together. And it's where the world begins to see us loving each other in ways that cannot be explained. Now, as we get ready for communion, I want to invite you to grab those elements, whatever you might have this morning, representing the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. And as we prepare for this, I just want to ask a couple of questions about this big idea of friendship and how we can lean into the ultimate deep truth of our universe that it's all relational, it's all about friendship with God and with each other. First question I have is this, in what ways are you participating in incarnation? Are you spending time hanging out with people? Second, are you in the middle of a cross moment? What burdens are you bearing? Or do you need to even open up yourself to those moments? Maybe you've been creating some barriers to that. You've been resisting that. But the next step for you is to open up to that so that you can walk with people or allow people to walk with you through a cross moment. And then resurrection. Where are you seeing new creation emerge? Where do you need to ask for or seek forgiveness or move towards reconciliation with someone? As we take communion, I want you to reflect on those questions, remembering what Jesus says in John 15, right? Greater love has no one than to lay down their life for their friends. And this is what Jesus has done for us. Because of his death and his resurrection, his body broken and his blood spilled for us, we can live in relationship with the God who made us in his image and with one another, practicing the one another's, being the kind of community that the world looks at and goes, something's going on there. Would you pray with me? Father, we do ask that we would be that kind of community where we are united in you and with each other, distinct people bearing your image and yet this unified community demonstrating what it looks like to live a different story, to participate in a different kingdom. May those friendships and relationships push against the individualism 
and the isolation that so often pervades our world? Will we be countercultural in the ways that we love you and love each other? We pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks again for tuning in. I want to end with a challenge and then a word of blessing over you. My challenge to you is this week, find some time to hang out with someone. Practice incarnation, being present with someone who you would like to spend more time with. As we go out, go out with these words over us. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Grace and peace, friends.